Welcome back to Allocation Disorder. This is Paul Tenorio. Usually Sam Stasekul is leading off the show. Sam is not available today, but we've got my esteemed colleague, Pablo Mar, who is not here to talk about water fountains, but <laughs> is going to change the dynamic of this show, adding expertise about coronavirus, I think. Pablo, I think you're just as uh, prepared for that as you are to talk about Landon's water fountain, right? Yeah, you know, last time I did Grant Wall's podcast, he called me the uh, the most interesting man in American soccer. So I think your your introduction might be a little underwhelming, but but you know, I, we I can... mean, you know, you you come onto our show and just immediately start dropping <laughs> other podcasts within five seconds, um, and so we're just gonna have to think about that yeah, for a little while. Yeah, know, allocation pretty... disorder. You know, we're we're trying to start our own thing here, Pablo. We're a startup. Okay? It might be my first and last appearance on my company's own podcast, so we'll see how this goes. All right. Well, we have a lot to talk about in this show, Pablo, because yesterday was one of the most bizarre sporting days in the history of this country, and MLS was not immune to it. We spent most of our day reporting on the coronavirus and the impact of the coronavirus on soccer in this country. Major League Soccer suspended the league's play for 30 days, a minimum of 30 days. USL followed suit. U.S. Soccer canceled its upcoming friendlies in March and April. Uh, We expect the Olympic qualifying of CONCACAF to be suspended as well. Champions League has been suspended. Uh, We're anticipating potential changes to the Open Cup and the League's Cup in the days that come. So, it, it was a pretty crazy day, and you know maybe the first place to start is what the athletic story was about two days ago when this started to unfold, and that was the financial impact this has on MLS. And and what we what we know is that because MLS is so dependent on game day experiences, this is going to have a huge financial impact. And and I think that that's the reason that we've seen the changes. And and I wonder, Pablo, your take on. Do you think MLS is doing the right thing to suspend games and to um, to look at the last resort being playing in front of empty stadiums and to say whatever we have to do to have a season where fans are in the stands um, for however many ga- however many games we can play is the right path for for MLS? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know something I, I I don't know that's been talked about or thought about a lot is uh, you know certainly the NHL, NBA, Major League Baseball the NFL, all those leagues, when they cancel games, obviously the, the financial loss, uh, you know, numbers wise is, is probably obviously much, much larger than, um, than that of an MLS team. But, you know, the smaller loss has an outsized impact, uh, like you just said, on an MLS club. I mean, there's some, um, you know, I think, uh, maybe it was Sam or somebody else, the site reported that there, you know, he had, he had conversations with, MLS stakeholders, one of whom said they were, you know, they had a contingency to lose maybe 20% of their annual revenue over this sort of like uh, month long absence. Uh, you know, that would have been obviously had they decided to play games in empty stadiums. I mean, I don't think there's, look, there's not even an argument uh, over whether this was the right or wrong decision. You know, obviously, public health and safety comes first. Um, MLS was never, you know, you sort of knew that, you know, when the NBA canceled, or postponed uh, games indefinitely that um, MLS would follow suit soon thereafter. I mean, the the just for even from a liability standpoint, the you know what they would have been exposing themselves to had they chosen to still have fans in stadiums or even players in stadiums would have been tremendous. So, no, I mean, I think um, 
I think it's tough to say whether it's the right or wrong decision, but I, I know from a business standpoint, especially some of the league's smaller clubs, obviously, um, this could have been, you know, maybe not catastrophic, but but certainly devastating to them. And I think we're going to see these decisions continue where, where people are going to wonder why the Open Cup might be canceled or the League's Cup. I mean, it's going to come down to financial reasons. These leagues can't afford, simply can't afford to lose home games um, without taking substantial financial hits. Do you, what, what's your thoughts? I think it's interesting that Open Cup might go away. I know you were doing some research and how long this tournament has, has gone on and has been running. What, how do you feel? I mean, if the Open Cup is gone, is that, is that bad for American soccer? Or do you say, look, this is an unprecedented event and I understand that thir- certain things are going to have to be sacrificed? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I selfishly am a huge fan of the Open Cup. I think it's like the most interesting competition in, in, in you know, soccer landscape in this country. I think a lot of people feel that way. Um, you know, I could be the, the crusty dude who says, well, you know, they, uh, they survived the Spanish flu outbreak of 1919 and two world wars. But I, I don't think that, um, uh, you know, people's mentality about this sort of stuff was really the same back then. Um, you know, so yeah, I think it would be, um, the loss of that competition, I think would be truly, truly unfortunate for teams, especially, um, at the third tier and, and, and below and, and, you know, at the American soccer landscape, these are teams that depend on the open cup for publicity, game day revenue, that sort of stuff to a lot of those clubs. It's sort of the biggest event of their year. Um, I did uh, have a conversation with, a um, you know, a club official or earlier this morning where he told me that he's simply, you know, I think Jeff Reuter, Reuter, excuse it, uh, excuse me, reported yesterday that, USL teams had already sort of asked US uh, soccer to allow them to bow out of the tournament so they could focus on rescheduling those home games they'd missed. I I don't know that I can see the tournament going on without uh, USL, and that's sort of what that uh, stakeholder told me um, this morning, you know. So, no, I think it's a huge loss. Make no mistake. But at the same time, um, again, you know, like all that's tempered by the fact that this is like a, an unprecedented global health crisis. So, I mean... At the end of the day, the U.S. Open Cup is um, is pretty uh, pretty small potatoes. Now the League's Cup, that's a different story. Hey, hey. I'm just kidding. Well, that, that's you you, you cancel this made up tournament, Paul. I'm going to be pretty pissed off. It's un, it's unbelievable, unbelievable. Yeah. That's yeah. where this has to stop. And that, that's been a challenge, you know, journalistically. I think for for all of the sports reporters in the last couple of days, certainly for um, the soccer reporters at the Athletic, it, it's hard to write about what's happening in the sport and try to you don't want to make too big of a deal out of these changes because in the grand scheme of as you called it a global health crisis that's that's ongoing um and which we don't really have a hold of a strangle of in this country right like it's it's we're only seeing the beginning impact of this right now in the united states um sports has to be secondary which is why the leagues are making the decisions that they're making so it's been kind of an interesting personal experience for me in doing my job writing about it and then trying to remind myself that, you know, and this doesn't really matter. And then, you, you know, I get that it's it's an, it's entertainment, something that people go to um, for relief, I guess, to get away from the, the daily grind. But, you know, I think that these decisions are the right ones simply because of that, right? We have to do things as a society to protect the 
um, the elderly and, and those who are more susceptible to um, to this virus and and gatherings of tens of thousands of people in a stadium wouldn't wouldn't accomplish that. So I, I don't know. I, have you felt the similar way kind of making these phone calls, writing about it as as, you know, as the rest of the virus uh, unfolds in, in the country and we see all the news reporting that's happening? Yeah, I mean, I guess I um, my thoughts have been all over the place the past day. I think uh, in a way, uh, you know, I tweeted something out yesterday. I just it was sort of a blanket statement um, that said, look, I know that soccer is in the grand scheme of things pretty insignificant right now but i am a soccer reporter so you can mute me if you want you know but i'm i'm going to continue covering sort of the the effects of this health crisis from a soccer perspective it's all i can do um but yeah i mean what i'll say is in a way man i've been kind of hardened in the past um day by by seeing these cancellations because my attitude is if the nba nfl mls whoever else you know you look at all the other uh, public and private institutions that have sort of um, closed up shop, you know, here in D.C., D.C. public schools just shuttered until April 1st. And um, I'm actually kind of hardened because, you know, in, in the case of some of those private institutions, you know, we just talked about the financial stake for MLS. Um, the, the more cynical part of me might have expected uh, them to sort of shrug and say, look, it's an outdoor venue or, you know, fans can stay home if they don't want to or, you know, if they don't want to come or they don't want to expose themselves to risk or the risk is pretty that low. So, I mean, like I, I honestly, my, my thoughts the past couple of days, I've been sort of encouraged by all this. I mean, I think obviously hope that it just sort of flatten out the spread of this and within, you know, two or three weeks, there's some sort of like return to normalcy, but, but, you know, yeah, for now it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm strangely encouraged. I mean, talk to me in two weeks when, um, uh, when I'm quarantined in the closet in my house or something like that, you know, but for now it's been, it's been uh, encouraging. Well, this wouldn't be an allocation disorder if we didn't get into some kind of nitty gritty minutia of major league soccer in the face of anything. <laughs> coronavirus it. included. Let's do it. Um, and so are you, you know, are you going to talk about the, the introduction of cam you now like coronavirus allocation money or something like that. Yes, is that what's happening? Breaking news. Cam is on its way to Major League Soccer. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, actually, somebody I, I, I tweeted about this yesterday and a fan had a perfect response, which was just like um, really a, actually a humbling experience for me. He said, you are the only person in the world that would think about something like this at this moment. And that is why I subscribe to The Athletic. <laughs> so uh, yeah. thank you to that fan. Yeah. And we're going to do it here at Allocation Disorder because that's why you guys are here. Um, I, I just was talking about the impact on there. I think two teams, especially that I thought this this timing was uh, maybe a bit worse than for anyone else in Major League Soccer, and that's Inter Miami, which has waited what seven years to have a home opener, yeah. and uh, had its home opener canceled, and then the Chicago Fire, which is trying to rebrand, trying to reintroduce itself in in the city, and has sold or distributed. 40,000 plus tickets to this game at Soldier Field, which was supposed to take place next Saturday. And now that game is not going to take place. And it's going to be incredibly difficult for them to, I don't know, to rehype up another home game with probably very little lead time into that game because they don't know which game is going to be the first game. And so I went to the Chicago Fire schedule and, you know, 
the MLS has, has suspended for 30 days, but we're now seeing, you know, state and local governments making decrees that um, prevent large gatherings, mass gatherings of people at concert halls and stadiums and, and things like that around the state. And it looks like Illinois is going to put one of those into place until May 1st, which extends beyond the 30 days. So let's say that that MLS's timeline continues on. You know, the Fire have two home games that would come after that 30-day delay from Major League Soccer. Um, those two games, though, become before May 1st. So those would both be canceled, um, which means – but it actually would work out in a way as a positive for the Fire as far as what the first game would be because it would potentially be May 9th at home against Inter-Miami on national TV on ABC – which would be a pretty nice introduction, but you know, I'm 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 speculating. I'm looking down, and this whole time I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, what are the odds that this suspension is lifted by May first? I don't know that they're that great, and I think it does make it does it does really hit hard in, in a market like Chicago that that had built so much around the return to Soldier Field. Yeah, I mean, I think that is what you just said is sort of spot on in that. Um... You know, yesterday when all these sort of thirty-day bans were announced, I I did certainly think to myself like, we're still in the infancy of this. You know what I mean? It could be, and also they're saying it could be twelve months to eighteen, twelve to eighteen months until a vaccine's available, all this sort of stuff. And and yeah, you know, all these sort of bans in the near term may flatten this out to where, you know, within like I said, within a month or two, things are relatively back to normal. But it's completely within the realm of possibility that we could go months without MLS. I don't know. Is it, is it that outlandish to think the season could be canceled? You know what I mean? It's certainly like, I, I certainly wouldn't uh, eliminate it from the realm of possibility at this point, you know? So it's, it is like the Miami thing is hilarious. It sort of was really, it really hit home from yesterday when literally as the announcement was coming out that MLS was suspending play, somebody, you know, in my timeline, there was a, a video of like journalists, you know, touring the new locker room at that modular stadium. Um, that's sort of how kind of quickly derailed uh, things have gotten there. Chicago, for sure, um, in a way, their stakes are even higher because of the sort of debacle with their um, with their crest and, you know, rebrand and stuff like that. They almost had even more now riding on uh, their their debut on the field, their, their reintroduction and whatnot. So, it is. It's a huge blow to those two teams. Um, there's there's just no way around it. You know, you look at a team even like the LA Galaxy that just went out and, and sort of like captured MLS's white whale. He's underwhelming for a couple of games, and now they sort of have to sit on that for a month, you know, um, at a month minimum, I should say. So there's plenty of teams around the league that, that this is going to – it's going to hit harder for, for some teams than others, but, but yeah, there's – there's a few teams that this is just sort of like the, you know, quasi worst case scenario for. Well, there you go. We got into the nitty gritty of Major League Soccer, as we always try to do on this show, the things that other podcasts don't talk about. And we did it with Pablo Mar, who is the most interesting soccer journalist in the country. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, a billing provided to him by Allocation Disorder. Just yeah, now. Yeah. Just right a, now. the public service announcement to avoid drinking from public water fountains. Don't drink from the Landon Donovan water fountain, you know. Um, However, if you'd like to find the Landon Donovan water fountain, Pablo can drop you that pin at any time. Just yeah. shoot him a, a message on Twitter. Exactly, exactly. Uh, before we move on to the second part of the craziest day in soccer media yesterday, 
Um, I'm going to do an ad read because Sam Stasekel is not here to do the ad read. So I want to take you take a moment to tell you a little bit more about uh, the company that we work for, The Athletic. And I think, you know, usually we talk about a certain writer, specific writer or story that um, has stood out to us at The Athletic. But I think we're really going to be challenged to show you um, what The Athletic's all about over the next 30 days, because I know our mission is to tell stories differently and to tell better stories and different stories than you're going to get anywhere else. And we're all going to be challenged to do that over the next 30 days with no sports. And I have a lot of faith in our team of reporters and writers to do that. And especially um, the reporter we're about to bring in for the second half of the show, Meg Linehan, who has been absolutely destroying everything on the women's national team beat. Her her work ethic is incredible. Um, her level of reporting and her ability to step out of that reporting and write columns that give you a really strong sense of where things stand. I, I really recommend going and checking out Meg's articles from this last week, covering everything about the women's national team lawsuit, the filings that came out that led to the resignation of Carlos Cordero. Um, and so we welcome Meg into the show now. Hi, Meg. Hello. How are you? I'm happy to have you on the show. We haven't talked in a few hours since our late night journey reporting on Carlos Cordero's resignation. And it was, uh, I think, the perfect way to end a crazy day, Meg, that bigger news or big news would come down following a, a, a sports day that was just insane. Right. Um, what was your reaction when you saw Carlos Cordero resign? You had just finished writing a column saying what? Essentially that, sure, he could resign, but ultimately it didn't necessarily solve anything. So, you know, I, I don't know if I had, if I was surprised by it necessarily. I think once the the sponsors really started to get vocal, and especially I think that statement from Volkswagen, which used the word disgusting, like it after that, it kind of feels like the writing is on the wall. But I think what we saw out of the reaction was from Molly Levinson, from Hope Solo, I mean, from, from pretty much everyone is really you've only gotten rid of one person and you have not addressed the systemic issues that are at Soccer House. Yeah. And I think what was interesting is we, we saw this build to this moment, right? I mean, the, the filings came out late at night. You were up in till ungodly hours working uh the game the she believes cup game took place the next day and the warm-ups were turned inside out and i think that visual to go along with the words that had been in the filing the night before (laughs) it was just like you could see two nails going into the coffin right i mean it was just like how there's no recovering from this right right and i you know this has been, at least for people who have been covering it, right? Like, this has been months in the works. And I mean, really, and again, this is kind of what the column was about yesterday. Like, this has been years and decades of treatment like this for the women's national team. So I just don't know if it has ever really escalated in a way that it did over the past week. But, I mean, they were they were deposing players like Carly Lloyd, like Alex Morgan, and asking them basically how they compare to 16- and 17-year-old boys in December, then we had the filings in February where both sides asked for summary judgment. Uh, U.S. soccer was already starting to use this argument of strength and skill and, you know, not equal work between the men and the women. And then just this last week, I mean, 
it wasn't even like they doubled down. I mean, they just really went all in on that language and then to, to essentially then follow it up with quoting this transphobic report on biological differences between female and male athletes that is essentially used by TERFs to defend women's sports as a concept. Like, I just don't, that was my whole question. Like, how do you come back from that? And the question that like, okay, yeah, we've gotten answer number one, which is Carlos Cordero doesn't, but how does U.S. soccer come back from this? And I still don't know the answer beyond really a full transparent looking at the inner workings of who has power. Yeah. I thought it was, yeah. I thought it was interesting too. Um, you saw a lot of at least somewhat prominent figures within the U S men's soccer community who'd been sort of quiet on this for one reason or another for the past, um, you know, year, 18 months, whatever, all of a sudden yesterday, feel emboldened <laughs> to comment um, to Marcus Beasley, Stu Holden, a lot of people like that. Some some of them who actually even voted for Cordero. I, I, f- I feel like when I saw that, sort of, that was a, a, a an entirely separate tipping point where it's like, okay, now this is like um, entirely out in the open to the point where current and former players, Dax McCarty, all those people are, are sort of mm-hmm. taking to Instagram and Twitter just to, to openly uh, criticize the USSF deservingly. So I'd, I don't know. It was uh, just like a maybe a small foot footnote to the entire situation, but it was it was interesting to watch people come out of the ward work yesterday. Yeah, I mean, yeah. to be fair, everybody's online just because everybody's working from home right now. So yeah, it's true. It's true. It was kind yeah. of a perfect storm in terms of just everybody was online, and this was kind of the one other thing that seemed to be happening beyond stuff getting canceled. And I think you know it's fair to point out in our reporting yesterday. And, and what we were seeing on social media, we know that the Athletes Council swayed the vote at the presidential, the U.S. soccer presidential election two years ago to push things away from Kathy Carter and away from the non-establishment candidates, Kyle Martino and Eric Winalda and Hope Solo and, and over into uh, Carlos Cordero's corner. Um, and I thought it was interesting to see some former players yesterday talking about, you know, they regret that decision or they feel like that was the wrong decision and being willing to voice that because it's not easy to put your hand up in this society and say, I got something wrong. Um, and, you know, we had some quotes in our stories yesterday of of players who um, who I thought really came strong with that idea. And the the part that really hit home to me was Angela Hughley's talking about uh, being a part of the U.S. Soccer Board as the vice chair of the Athletes Council and feeling as though um, she was empowered in that position and didn't want to lose that power that they had fought so hard for, to have a, a female athlete on the board, to have an African-American female on the board, and how difficult it was to be able to push for the things that she believed were right at fear and of the risk of losing that position and how now, you know, she's kind of examined what she said and what she didn't say in key moments. And she's watched this women's team approach this fight without that fear and with an aggressiveness and an assertiveness uh, that, as she put it, kind of exemplifies leadership and changes the way that she thinks about, um, you know, her own time within U.S. soccer. And I think, you know, that took for me a lot of um, courage to come out and say, to say, hey, maybe 
you know, maybe I didn't do things perfectly. Maybe I wish I, I wish I had been as strong as these women are. And I, I think that there is some credit. I mean, there's a lot of credit that they that this women's national team should get. But I think we should we should see that this is a reflection of um, of that effort of those women saying enough is enough and, and empowering others to to say that publicly as well. I think one of the big takeaways from this team is the fact that they move as a team. And I think that we saw that this week, both in terms of the warm up protests, which was so genius. And like, I know I joked about this on Twitter, but the, the fact that, you know, the embroidery actually lets the four stars be visible, but U.S. soccer crest is hidden. Like, it's such a small thing, but it's such a powerful image. And I mean, that tweet, when I, when I saw those photos, like that took off instantly. And then every single player shared that image of them. Like they, instead of a starting 11 photo, they all stood, no smiles, warm up shirts inside out over their jerseys for a team photo behind the She Believes Cup board, right? Like we're still doing this at the time of hashtag She Believes Cup, as Becky Sauerbrunn put it in the mix zone out in uh, New Jersey. So there's just a lot happening in terms of how women are working together that I think there's going to be a lot of lessons to take away from this. I think it's it's funny. This is, again, sort of a small detail, but it, it's hilarious to me from a design perspective that, that that crest, which is something that literally was designed unintentionally, I mean, w- with intentionality, but obviously the end result was... <laughs> what it was and that it, it instantly became um, so incredibly relevant, fully saturated social media. And, and honestly, I'm sure they've sold tens, hundreds of thousands of those t-shirts. It, it like, yeah. it just reminds me, it's like you, you can't uh, engineer or design authenticity. You know what I mean? Like it's something that just happens organically sometimes. And it was interesting to watch uh, that entire process. I mean, and women's I- soccer Twitter is so engaged that as soon as that happened, I mean, we're talking about one fan just literally like rolling into Photoshop, I think, and and doing the crest with the four stars. And then like, I mean, my mentions had one person in them with that as their new Twitter profile photo. And then suddenly it was everyone. Yep. Yeah. I, I think it sets up kind of the idea of what's next in this reporting. And um, there are two main themes that come out of this that I think are important to where we go next as reporters, but where the stories will go. And that is, um, Meg, you already alluded to one or said one, which is what is the change at U.S. soccer going to look like? You know, there there is no Carlos Cordero now. There is no Jay Burhalter, There is no Dan Flynn. It's a significant change. And, and no Sunil Gulati, um, mm-hmm. who is no longer going to be able to sit as a non-voting member during these board meetings, though I, I guess Cordero will be. I mean, we have some follow-up questions to ask about what Carlos Cordero's role is going to be with the World Cup committee and on the board. Um, what is Dan Flynn's role currently on the World Cup committee? Um, and and trying to figure out how much is going to change at U.S. Soccer. It's a big story. It's an important story. Cindy Parlo Cohn is now the president of U.S. Soccer, the first female president of U.S. Soccer, um, a former women's national team player. Can she affect change? We've heard a lot of positive things about her in the last few days, um, or I, I should say the last day since she ascended to to this position, and people are starting to, to ask what will she be like as a leader. You know, that's a big part of this. And the second thing goes to the idea of unity, and I think there are some big questions now about what will unity look like between the men's national team and the women's national team? Because 
we've seen the power and the strength that can come, the leverage that can be created with unity that the women's national team has shown, um, especially, you know, even just um, with something like turning your shirts inside out together and, and doing, um, you know, creating a movement together. Um, and, and I think fairly there are questions of, you know, will the men's national team step up in a way that goes beyond prepared and lawyered up statements from the, the national team players association. Those to me are the two big storylines that will drive this, um, this change forward. And that will be um, the important things for us to, to report on. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we tried our best in a, you know, 30 to 40 minute podcast to go over what was the craziest and most substantial day uh, I've had as a soccer reporter in this country, just with the amount of news that occurred. Um, We brought two of the very best onto the podcast to talk about it. So thank you to Pablo and to Meg. I hope that Meg can finally get some rest and relaxation after what has been a, a week for her more than anyone else um, just the level of reporting that she's done, as we talked about. We'll be back next week with another allocation disorder. Hopefully, Sam Stasekel will be back and and uh, ready to rejoin us. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next time.